Hi, welcome to the Whole Therapist Podcast. We're leaving out the theorizing and exploring this strange phenomenon of being a human and a therapist. I'm Kelly, licensed marriage and family therapist, working in private practice settings as a clinician and a clinical supervisor in the Denver metro area. And I'm Abby. I'm a licensed clinical social worker and the owner of a group practice in the Denver metro area. Kelly and I are both registered play therapists, supervisors, and EMDR certified. So we're both therapists, but this is not therapy. And we're both supervisors, but this is not supervision. This podcast is purely for fun. So for any ethical concerns on your caseload, please refer to your state laws and licensing boards. And please remember to follow The Whole Therapist on Instagram, Facebook, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening station. For more resources, blogs, and consultation opportunities, visit wholetherapistinstitute.com. So come join our conversation while we explore the embodied experience of neuroscience and authenticity in the therapy room. Hi, welcome to the Whole Therapist Podcast, where today we're coming straight out of an Airbnb in Vail, Colorado. (laughs) I'm Kelly. And I'm Abby. We're so happy to be with you today. We sure are. Welcome to one of our bonus episodes. Today we want to talk about reflective functioning. Or otherwise known as mentalizing or mentalization. Yes, Fonagy, Cozzolino, Siegel, and so many others have really highlighted and talked about this. And I do have to give Marshall Lyles credit to introducing me to to both of us, to Peter Fonagy. I just cannot unknow some of these things. So I thank you, Marshall, if you're listening. (laughs) I think we could start with what is reflective functioning and mentalizing and why do we care? Why should you listen to these 18, 20 minutes on it? Mm -hmm. And so I'd love to just read the definition, if that's helpful. Yeah, I think that'd be perfect. Um, Mentalizing or reflective functioning is our capacity to understand ourselves and others in terms of intentional mental states, like feelings, desires, wishes, goals, attitudes. So should I read it again? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Reflective functioning is our capacity to understand ourselves and others in terms of intentional mental states. So, and that includes feelings, desires wishes, attitudes. And so really, and I'm reading this from Peter Fonagy's um, Reflective Functioning Questionnaire site that we will link in the notes, and Mm -hmm. we will talk a little bit more about this questionnaire in a bit. Essentially, the way that I understand it is reflective functioning or mentalization is our ability, this is Siegel's language, to hold um, another person's mind in mind. So we have our own mind, like I have my mind, and I'm holding Kelly's mind in mind. At the same time. Exactly. Yeah, I was just going to add that. So in any given moment, I'm aware of what's happening for me while also holding that something might be happening for you that's different than my experience. That's different. This is like someone who has poor reflective functioning is the client that may be unable to even entertain the idea that their partner or child is having a different experience than they are. There's a rigidity there. Yes. Or, you know, specifically when you're working with kids and parents together, Mm -hmm. you may hear a parent, well, the kid is just being so manipulative. Yes. Well, the kid is out to get me. Right. Um, And because that is the parent's experience of this interaction, Mm -hmm. but they're not able to hold that actually what might be happening is something different than my experience. Right. The child might be powerless, Mm -hmm. for example. Yes. There is so much we could say about the neurobiology of mentalization that we cannot go into in a bonus episode, but we encourage you 
um, to look up Cozzolino, Siegel, and Fonagy to learn more. And in its essence, it seems like it's very related to hippocampal function. Mm -hmm. So if we have like an increased capacity for mentalizing, our hippocampus is working well and larger even. Mm -hmm. And we'll end accessing the social brain, which is Cozzolino's words. Mm -hmm. Accessing the social brain, you have to truly be in a regulated nervous system state. So yeah. ventral vagal, yeah, window of tolerance, you're in your window, all that different language, the river of wellness. Mm-hmm. So how these three people talk about it. Yes. Um, you have to be feeling safe and okay enough that there's an, a literal openness mm-hmm. to the mind. Well, I think that's what Kozlino is saying is um, the social mind, yes. right? And maybe we should be talking yes. about, specifically Dan Siegel talks a lot about it. There is a difference between the brain and the mind. Yes. And actually, in um, one of Cozzolino's books, he says that our minds emerged much further down than the evolutionary path, and we still don't even understand the origins of the mm-hmm. mind. Um, but he says it has something to do with groups of brains coming together yes. to form superorganisms we call tribes. Um, and so at this point in evolution, our best guess is that the human brain is a social organ, and the mind is a product of many interacting brains. Yes. It is that space between, mm-hmm. the space between my nervous system and your nervous system. So why would somebody not have reflective functioning? It's mm, a good question. We might find that therapists and clients that have less capacity for reflective functioning or mentalizing mm-hmm. have experienced significant attachment trauma. Yes. Meaning that there was not attunement. There was not another nervous system to reflect back how they may be feeling. No one held their mind in mind. Mm -hmm. So there's this developmental, literal structural stunting in the brain. We find that the hippocampus is smaller, for example, Mm -hmm. among a million other things. Right. And so when you work with clients that have trauma and that aloneness, the lack of that empathic witness, Peter Levine's words for trauma, they truly don't have the capacity to hold another person's mind in mind, whether it's their child, a partner, because of trauma. Yes, and, and that's, we need someone to witness our experience, yes. which is why therapy works. Yes, that's why it's uh, not like a computer robot. Right? Right. It has to be relational. Yes, <laughs> but that's why trauma happens, yes. because there is nobody there or no felt sense of somebody there to witness what's happening and to mirror back to you the meaning of this situation. It's integration. Mm-hmm. This is really helpful to understand because a lot of people will come in and be like, well, I had a good childhood. Mm-hmm. My child was fine. My basic needs were met. And as you begin to listen to the attachment strategies and styles of your client, you can begin to see the lack of attunement is trauma. The nervous system knows it as trauma. That lack of reflecting back, oh, I'm holding your mind in mind mm-hmm. when you had a bad day at school. If that happens repeatedly, we're talking about attachment trauma. Mm-hmm. Some clients truly think, oh, PTSD is, is war veteran, mm-hmm. so, or, right? Like these big T traumas. Mm-hmm. I don't even like that phrase. Right. Because it minimizes the impact of what trauma really is. I'm thinking about this experience you talked to me about with your pancakes <laughs> and how this Gosh. friend's dad <laughs> clearly could not hold you in mind. Yeah. Oh, goodness. So I had a best friend growing up who would, her, th- his, her dad would make us pancakes every morning which is lovely. Mm-hmm. Like that sounds good on paper. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did not have the option to say when we were full mm-hmm. and we would have to keep eating these pancakes. He would keep making them. 
And I remember trying to say, I- I'm okay, like being little. Mm-hmm. And this happened for years. I'm okay, I'm done. Oh no, just one more. Come on, I'm still making them. Mm-hmm. So his experiences. I love making pancakes and I love watching you eat them mm-hmm. for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my experience was I'm not hungry anymore, mm-hmm. but I'm a child. So I don't really have the option to say no. And I would feel sick the rest of the day from eating so many pancakes. This came up because in our Airbnb, we were talking about breakfast. I cannot eat pancakes as an adult. I do not like them. Yeah. Well, the reason I, that just came to mind for me is this is another example of Most people do not think of that as a traumatic experience. Yes, yes. But when something like that happens over and over again. Yes, for years. Mm -hmm. And not every day, but every time Mm -hmm. I would be there. It is embedded as trauma Mm -hmm. so much that I don't eat pancakes now. Right. And it's like a small enough example, right? But we think about our clients who every day, or maybe it was their parent Mm -hmm. or... But yes, this inability, he had the inability to understand my experience was different than his. Right. Yes. And I'm really struck as I think about reflective functioning being the essence. I don't think it's too bold to say that it is needed in every aspect of therapy. Absolutely. No one writes about this on their goals, right, for treatment plans, but it should Mm. be. So like the reflective functioning questionnaire is so helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, You can look it up. It's free. Again, Marshall's the one who directed me to this, and I love it because there's some data. Yeah. How do you use it? Yeah. It's just a really brief questionnaire. There's eight questions, I think like 48 and 54. So you can pick how long, Mm -hmm. um, and you can score it. And there's questions on there that the client answers like, I often know what other people are thinking. Hmm. I trust myself. I do not trust myself. Like there's just these questions they rate as true or not so true. Mm -hmm. And just even glancing it over, you have a pretty good, as you begin to read more about reflective function, you begin to get an understanding of like, oh, this is a client who believes that they know everything already Mm. um, or are quite humble and secure that maybe they're one of the questions is there's no right way to respond to things. Mm-hmm. So can they hold the gray? Um, yeah. Do they have perspective taking? Is there also then information that comes up on a client who is always looking towards other people to give them information yes. and they can't the hold their own? Self. Yes. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Mm. But you begin to understand the internal working model of the client. And when you do data like this, now we have shared language if we're creating goals together where I can begin to, we can agree that this could be a goal. And so the therapy can change a little bit. They have a little more buy-in. Yes. Um, especially for very rigid clients who don't have this much capacity. Mm-hmm. And so that's been really helpful. And this idea of attunement being the antidote. I'm thinking about therapists, what this means for us. Tell me if this lands for you. Mm-hmm. As therapists, we cannot help our client increase their mentalization if we do not possess that ability ourselves it is literally impossible if we cannot hold our client in mind as we're working with them we can't help them hold someone else's mind it's no, impossible it is because you're yes. speaking to mirror neurons exactly right we have to reflect that skill yes. back to the client yes if we don't have that skill we cannot reflect it back right and we can't create this openness that Cozolino talks about so poetically mm-hmm. where like Oh, what does he say in that book? You read it, it um, that he, when we are attuned to the client, 
that there's this, their social brain comes online. Mm -hmm. There's an openness to take in something that they would otherwise reflexively reject. Yes. So every, every one of us has these narratives that may be inaccurate, Mm -hmm. that feel so true. Mm -hmm. And it is not until our social brain comes on because we are radically attuned by another Mm -hmm. that we could even consider there might be another narrative. I wonder if it's helpful for the for the therapist that's listening to talk about the felt sense of when I have reflective functioning capacity in the therapy room Mm -hmm. how am I feeling in my body well I wonder if you even take a step back and talk about the shuttling yeah yes so again Cozzolino um talks about in the making of a therapist his book that there's this concept of shuttling which I think is a beautiful image. Mm -hmm. Um, Essentially, it's the ability for the therapist to go up and down within their own mind and body. Mm -hmm. How am I feeling? What am I feeling? What am I thinking? Mm -hmm. And then to go, so up and down, and then to go across between myself and the client. Mm -hmm. What what is my best guess that my client is thinking and feeling in Mm -hmm. their body? And then to come back to themselves. Okay, what am I thinking and feeling in my body? And go across again. Mm -hmm. And so there's this like beautiful vertical and horizontal shuttling yes of awareness yeah and that is reflective functioning absolutely ability. yes and over time other therapists have read Cozzolino's um, books and information and so for instance synergetic play therapy yes. would um, term that what's called the setup yes and the way that Lisa Dion describes it is for so many years we were taught here's me in this chair and you're over there and my job is to figure out your experience and what Cozzolino has brought in is that we first have to know what our experience is mm-hmm. before then shuttling over yes. to noticing the other person experience. Yes. And then when you notice that other person experience, it's like, oh, how is that impacting me? And now let me notice mm-hmm. my experience knowing what their experience is. Yes. And that this is the therapy. If we are to reflect back to the client, their inherent worth Robin Global talks about that all the time. Their mm-hmm. preciousness be mm-hmm. this accurate mirror. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to really sit with what's coming up for us. Like, is it not dual awareness? I was just going to say, like, this is EMDR speak. Like, yep. it really is the essence of all effective therapy, relational work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, we read a statistic on, like, 90% of what's going on in our brain is already in our brain. It's things we already have learned, seen, known, mm-hmm. only 10% of what's happening in our brain, even in this moment, is outside of myself. So you're really not that powerful therapists. <laughs> like, at best, we're 10%. And so, and that's if they have the ability to take it in. And so just understand that, like, what's going on for the client is 90% about their own experience and their narratives. And we get to, like, find these glimpses of, I need to know about not my 90%, what's mm-hmm. happening for me in that moment, and these glimpses of like when they're open to take in something externally from myself. Mm-hmm. feels like there's freedom in that. Well, it, to me, it also goes back to if they 90% already have within them the answers, we just know, again, that our job is to just sit there and mirror back the 90% that they already have so they can see it. There's an intervention that we learned from Anna Gomez Mm -hmm. that would be so helpful. So for you left-brainers that would like something to do, so you've got the reflective functioning questionnaire, go look it up Mm -hmm. um, from Peter Fonagy. You can administer that. Um, But there's also this lovely expressive intervention 
Yeah, I use it a lot in work with uh, parents and children, but you really could do it with couples. I do you, with adults, too. Yeah, you can do it yes. with adults. And basically, somebody comes in, and they are processing an experience, a relational experience they had with you. And I'll use kids and parents. Yeah. So the parent comes in, and they're telling me about a bedtime and just this two-hour-long issue. I ask them, what is the worst part about this two-hour bedtime? So that way we just get a quick glimpse of it. And then I ask them, I'd like you to just draw the worst part out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you do all of the normalization about drawing. And I'm a terrible drawer, which really helps because I always have one. And I say, you know, here's how this is not about your artwork. (laughs) So they draw it. And then I have them look at it. And I say, when you look at this now, what do you notice? What are you feeling as you're thinking about this in this moment? Mm -hmm. And they, you know usually will come up with, you know, I'm, I can notice that my heart's racing even just thinking about it, or I'm still mad about it, or yeah, I'm still thinking about how they're just so manipulative at night. Mm. And then the next question is, and when you look at this picture, what do you think was happening for them in that moment? Yes. And it's right there where you pick up the information. Yes. There, there are caregivers, parents who go, I have no idea. Yeah. You know, or they just say something that reflects again back to what their experience is. You know, they just repeat it. Yeah, they're being manipulative. Right. That's not speaking to the yes. child's experience. It goes back to that research that has found over and over that reflective functioning capacity is the biggest um, like protective factor for children to grow up with secure attachment. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can be a disorganized, attached parent, which we know if you're familiar with attachment styles, um, is often the most damaging mm-hmm. um, type of parent. So there's like, I need you, but you're unsafe. And unpredictability, it's unorganized. Mm-hmm. And if this parent can do that activity with you and have and begin to have reflective functioning capacity, even a parent that was abusive with disorganized attachment style can parent their child well enough that the child will grow up more secure than another parent who veers towards another organized, insecure attachment style without reflective functioning. Yes. There's something really powerful about this. Um, and there's a part of me that wants to name like, and as therapists, we need to hold, I just read it in a book that, um, and I'll find the author, we'll put it in the show notes. Like we make no apologies for having high standards. Yeah. There's a high standard for us to do our own work in this field unapologetically we ask you to do that because Mm -hmm. this is where like the beauty is and healing for us Mm -hmm. there's aliveness and joy as we sit with grief or whatever our multiple states of being are Mm -hmm. Um, and then we get to invite clients to explore that too I, I wonder if there's more emphasis on that in grad schools we would have different different feeling new therapists now totally yeah absolutely I think one other thing I'd like to add is to take some responsibility off of the therapist. If you do this assessment or this art intervention and you are aware now that this parent doesn't have reflective functioning, and this is also the parent that's like, we're making no progress, you can't fix my kid, that parent needs work. Yes. And if you're a therapist that's in a setting that has to do that, I just, I need you to hold that like you're going to have to do some strong parent work and maybe some therapy with that parent. And however that looks in the setting that you're in, 
But the ideal situation is that you can refer that parent to another therapist who knows how to do this kind of work. That kiddo can build some resilience with you, but is really going to need that parent to do their own work, just as that kiddo and that parent need you to have done your own work. Exactly. It's circle of security again. The hands holding the hands, holding the hands. (laughs) So we hope this was helpful. Again, we'll put some resources if you want to learn more about this enlivening um, and important research.